so simple. But Lord, just renew our hearts. Give us what we need for this day and time. For us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, JT, musicians, singers. Beautiful. Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. Isn't the Lord good? He truly is. Amen. Hey, I've got, before our speaker comes, I've got a couple, uh, one really happy announcement to give you. Morgan, uh, who uh, grew up, Morgan Brown grew up in our church, and she got married right here at, at Gospel, and uh, she and her husband, Gage, Moeller are expecting their first baby. So congratulations to them. Amen. Yeah. That means that Larry and Tracy Brown, who is Morgan's parents, will have their first grandbaby. So I know they're excited about that. So when you get a chance to see them, speak to them, tell them you're happy for them, praising the Lord with them. And then... Uh, Brother Kobe mentioned Cynthia Stanley having her surgery tomorrow, and I looked over there, and Cynthia's actually here, right? There she is. Yeah, I knew I saw you over there. Raise your hand real high. For the people who don't know who you are, most everybody does, but for some, they don't. And uh, she's been going through, of course, these chemo with, uh, with her cancer and surgery tomorrow. I want to just have special prayer. Stand with me, everyone. We're going to have special prayer for a moment. Uh, for Cynthia. Father, we thank you for Cynthia and what she means to this church and all the years of faithful service. We know she's gone through difficult times through the years, bouts with cancer herself, losing her son. And so, Lord, we pray that you would comfort her heart again and speak your strength and give your strength to her soul, we pray. We pray for the surgery tomorrow. God, the surgeon's hands, may it be successful. But we know you're the great physician, so we're asking you for complete healing and recovery from this. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, Cynthia. We love you, and we're all praying uh, for you. Well, you remember two weeks ago, uh, we had uh, Pastor Nick Decker with us and his family, and I invited them to come back again today. And so Nick's going to be sharing his testimony and sharing God's word. And uh, Hannah is here again, and Karis is in the nursery. So uh, uh, we're happy to have this family with us again today. So uh, Pastor Nick, if you would, come and share God's word with us, please, sir. Pastor Paul, appreciate that. Good morning. Thankful to be here this morning. Thank you, Pastor Paul, and for the opportunity uh, to be back uh, with Gospel Baptist uh, we uh, count it a privilege um, to be here and to preach God's Word uh, this morning. I know sometimes a pastor can get to talking and uh, talk too much, so here's what I'm going to do. It's got to be a little creative here, okay? So I'm going to share my testimony with you and maybe we'll sprinkle a few uh, things about my story uh, throughout the message today, okay? So if you'll listen fast, I'll preach fast, and uh, we'll get out of here fast, okay? All right, let's do that. Uh, we, uh, we counted a privilege to serve God and, and to be in ministry together. Uh, and we ultimately look at that as uh, what 1 Corinthians 15 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and we are what we are. And so the very reason that I stand in the pulpit today, I believe, uh, first of all, comes by God's, God's grace. 
And so uh, I'm very thankful for God's work in my life. I grew up in a pastor's home, as Pastor Paul mentioned a few weeks ago. My dad's pastored uh, for well over 30 years and has been in ministry with my mother. And uh, so many people think that because of that, what kind of testimony do you have? Well, I want to say this, a testimony is a testimony regardless of what your testimony is. And uh, we're thankful uh, that God uh, was able to raise us. I'm thankful to be raised in a, a Christian home and to grow up in the church. We were always, because of being in uh, a pastor's family, you know, you're in church when the doors are open and when the doors are closed, okay? And so we spend a lot of time at, uh, at church, but I'm very thankful for that, um, for that opportunity. I was saved at the age of 11, came to know Christ. Uh, one evening, I was sitting in uh, my bedroom, and you know, you come to those moments, I'm sure many of you have, and maybe you have kids. Uh, my dad always said that when your kids want to talk to you, you talk to them, but they always come at the worst times of the night, right? <laughs> I'm sure that's happened to you at some point. So I came under conviction, came to know Christ uh, one evening. Uh, my parents led me to the Lord. I came to understand what it meant to believe that Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 15 again says, died on the cross for my sins, he was buried, and he rose again. Uh, according to the scriptures. So I came to know Christ that evening, committed my life uh, a few years after that uh, to full-time Christian ministry. I like to use scripture when it comes to a calling. So 1 Timothy 3 talks about those who desire or aspire to the office of an elder or a pastor, aspire or desire something good. So I believe God has given me a desire, given me a calling to be in ministry. I remember a missionary was preaching one evening at Triad uh, Baptist, and I was wrestling with the Lord. Have you ever wrestled with God before? Even as an eighth grade, ninth grade student, I was wrestling with the Lord, saying, God, I don't want to do this. I'd rather do everything else but be in ministry. And uh, the pastor spoke that evening, that missionary spoke on giving your life for the Lord, just like uh, God would do that, right? And I remember going down to the altar that night and committing my life, regardless of what that looked like, whether vocational or just as a volunteer, whatever it looked like, I want to be in the local church. So I believe God has called me to the local church, and uh, I'm thankful for that, that opportunity. Started uh, my uh, academic career, you'd want to say, studying for the ministry, and, uh, and so went off to seminary and just fell in love with God's Word and uh, thankful for the opportunity to study there. Matt Smith, as some of you know, most of you know, called me. I was finishing up school, and uh, he called me. He said, hey, I need a part-time kids pastor. And I said, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to do it. And he said, well, just come on, give it a try. And a God in the middle of that, by the way, was working. Right? God always works providentially. You don't always see it. But God was working. My wife at that time, uh, we were dating, and uh, she just got a job in Greensboro. So in all of that, God started working and said, well, I want you to go do that, right? And didn't say it audibly, but just felt the Lord's leading to be in the local church, to serve God uh, that way. And so I came and served there for uh, over four years now. Very thankful for Matt and uh, his influence on me and, and Allison as well, not just because he's my brother-in-law, uh, but he's a friend and a partner in the ministry, and I'm very thankful for him. I would not be where I'm at today uh, without uh, his influence on me. And, uh, and so it's been good, too, to be able to serve under him, and if God providentially works, because what he's been able to do is give me some dirt on every one of you, okay? <laughs> so I know exactly what I'm dealing with, right? <laughs> You probably have some stuff on him, too, so uh, i got to be careful, or he has to be careful, right? 
but I'm thankful uh, for that opportunity. And so what I want to do today is I want to sprinkle just a few things about my life and my testimony and my wife's life as well throughout the sermon. Try to get a little creative here. Uh, but I believe, as Pastor Paul does too, I want to preach. And I believe God speaks through his word. That's why we gather today. We don't gather just to sing. We don't gather just to fellowship. We gather here to preaching of God's word. And so I'm going to do that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. I want to preach on the quiet hand of God in your life and my life today. You're probably sitting there thinking, what in the world is a candidate thinking when he preaches an Old Testament narrative for a candidating sermon? I thought that this week as well. Uh, but I want to say this simply, I don't like to preach what God hasn't laid on my heart. So I believe God should speak to me before he speaks to you. And so I want to preach to me before I preach to you. And God has been speaking to me through Nehemiah 2 throughout this whole week. I've lived in this text. And so I pray that it convicts your heart as it has convicted mine. We're going to look at the first eight verses. As we're turning there, I want to draw your attention to this storyline of the hero and the villain. How many of you, by raise of hand, grew up having a favorite hero? How many have... A favorite hero, good, like eight of you. I'm sure there's more than that, right? <laughs> we all have a, a hero that we love and a villain that we hate. And by the way, authors, writers love to include a hero and a villain in a story. They know to be successful, you got to have a hero and you have to have a villain, right? To make people, to draw them in, you got to have a hero, you got to have a villain. We all have those things and we love it. We love a hero-villain story, whether it's Marvel or DC or whatever. We pay the money, the big bucks, to go watch it uh, or, or to read about it because we love a hero-villain story. Now, when we come to the Bible, by the way, there is one ultimate hero, and that is God, right? God is the hero of every single story. But friends, here's the problem. If we're not careful, we begin to glorify the character or the human of the Bible and overlook the God of the Bible. It's pretty simple. You come to the story of David and Goliath, and if you're not careful, you look at David and you say, David is the hero of the story. But in reality, behind all of that, David is fallen. You think about it, just a few chapters past David and Goliath, what does David do? He falls into sin. He's fallible, just like any other character in the Bible. Why is that? Because God has to be the hero of every story. And his hand, his quiet hand, is what I like to call it, is moving in every story. You think about this. It's directing every single situation, every circumstance to bring about his purposes and his plan. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And if we come away just glorifying the human, we've missed what the Holy Spirit is doing with God's word. We've missed it. So we have to come back and realize that God is the hero of every story. We apply that to Nehemiah chapter 2, and what we see there is that God is directing and moving in every situation, every circumstance to bring about his plan in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah isn't writing a story about himself. He's not writing, and I love this, many pastors come to Nehemiah, and they're about to start a building campaign, right? So let's go preach on Nehemiah. That's not the purpose of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is drawing attention to God. He's drawing attention to God's hand in every situation. And by the way, God moves his hand in your life. Every single circumstance, every single situation you're involved in, God is moving. God is moving. He's directing. He's guiding you. 
And so what that does is that brings me to what I would call a main idea. I always like to have a main idea of the text. And so Nehemiah 2, if I have a focus for you today, it's this. And if you're taking notes, you can mark this down. I hope you are today. Got a pen and paper ready. We can know that despite our situation, despite our circumstances, despite what we go through in life, God's hand is active and is in control of our lives. It's active and in control of our lives. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 2, and I want to draw your attention to that today. In Jeremiah 25, I'll give you a little history lesson. Jeremiah 25, God declares that the nation of Israel will go into captivity with King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon because of their sin. Well, that comes to pass in 2 Chronicles 36. King Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? He gets Israel into captivity because of their sin. Now you ask, is Nebuchadnezzar a Christian at that point? Is, did he pick up Jeremiah 25 and say, well, I've got to fulfill Scripture? No. He's a pagan king. He's an unbeliever at that point, but that's no problem for God. Why? Because God, quiet hand moves. There's no miracle. There's no sign. There's no wonder. It's just God's quiet hand. You go a few pages over, Jeremiah 29. I want you to see this now. Jeremiah 29, God says, I'll bring you back, right? You're going to go in captivity, but I'll bring you back, right? Well, how does that happen? 150 years earlier, Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, I want you to see this. Isaiah 44 what does he do? He says, King Cyrus of Persia. 150 years before it happens. King Cyrus of Persia will bring you back into the, your land. You get to Ezra chapter 1, just a few pages before where we're at today. Ezra 1 1, guess what happens? King Cyrus fulfills scripture. Did King Cyrus pick up Jeremiah 29 and say, mm, I better fulfill scripture? No. What did he do? God's quiet hand is moving. No sign, no wonder, no miracle. God's quiet hand. He's moving in his life. Well, then you get there and you say, well, the nation of Israel needs to worship, right? They come back into their land. They've, uh, they've been able to put together some things, a temple. They want to worship. They want to do all these things, but they don't know how. What does God do? He raises up another pagan king, Ezra 7, King Artaxerxes. How did God do that? Ezra 7, 6. I won't turn there for sake of time. Ezra 7, 6, it says that God had given all these things. God had allowed kings... Artaxerxes to lead this and to give this over to Ezra. Why? Because of his hand. Because of his hand. Friends, it's the same thing for your life today. God moves most often, not through signs, not through wonders, uh, not through uh, these, these different uh, dimensions, not, not through uh, discounting the laws of nature. What's it through? Through his quiet hand. Through his quiet hand. You're going to see that today in Nehemiah 2. In fact, I want to draw your attention to three lessons. Three lessons that we can learn as believers today. Three lessons that we can learn as believers today when it comes to God's quiet hand. I want to jump into the story. Since in Old Testament narrative, I want to set the scene for us. Notice the first thing Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter 1. He looks around and the walls of Jerusalem are fallen. They're destroyed. So what does Nehemiah do? He prays, right? Good thing to do when you're first struggling to do something, right? Pray. So Nehemiah prays. But then Nehemiah 2 opens, and notice what Nehemiah is doing. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. 
And I, Nehemiah, took the wine up and gave it unto the king. Why would Nehemiah do that? Notice the end of chapter 1, verse 11. Notice the end of that verse. Thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we don't understand royalty in the Middle East. A cupbearer was a position of honor. It was a position of respect. It was a position that was trusted. See, here's what the cupbearer would do. The cupbearer would taste the king's meat before he ate it, and he'd drink from the goblet before the king. Here's why. Because they would poison those things in order to kill the king. So, in the event that it happened, well, so long Nehemiah, but... Long live the king, right? So he served as a cupbearer, but he was trusted. He was trusted. But notice we have a problem here. What's the problem? Nehemiah 2, 1 again. It says, Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Nehemiah is sad. Well, why, he, why is he sad? Notice, though, first of all, the king notices. Notice verse 2. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then notice Nehemiah was sore afraid. Why would Nehemiah be afraid if he's trusted by the king? Think about that with me. If somebody is respected by the king, if somebody is trusted by the king, if somebody spends his life taking care of the king, why would he be afraid? Well, Two reasons, quickly. Two reasons somebody would be afraid in the presence of the king. Number one, it's never polite etiquette when it comes to royalty. It's never polite to be sad in the presence of the king. In fact, it was a sign of distrust. In other words, the king thought something was going on, right? Is somebody trying to kill me? Does he have a plan against me? Nehemiah could have lost his life to be sad in front of the king. It's never right to be sad in front of a king in those days. Not only is Nehemiah worried about his life, but notice this too. Nehemiah is about to ask something that the king overturned. Think about Ezra chapter 4. You don't have to turn there for sake of time. But Ezra chapter 4, Artaxerxes stopped the building on Jerusalem because he feared Jewish revolt. And now Nehemiah is about to ask him to reverse that. It's a scary request, right? You're trying to get the king to turn on something that he turned over, right? That's what Nehemiah is trying to do. He's trying to get him to do those things. So he is afraid. He's afraid. What's the king going to say? What's the king going to do? Now watch this, verse 3. And I said unto the king, let the king live forever. It's a way of Nehemiah again saying, hold up, king. I'm not, I'm not trying to kill you, okay? Like, I'm affirming your loyalty, okay? I, I'm loyal to you. Notice here again, he goes on, he says, Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? In other words, why would I not be sad, king? Jerusalem is in the pits. The very place where my fathers lived and God was glorified, it's destroyed. Why would I not be sad about that? Now, you could probably imagine he's quivering at this point, right? I'd be terrified. You're asking the guy who has control over my life? You're, you're telling the guy what you're feeling when you're not supposed to act sad? Lips quivering. He, he's fearful. He's worried about what's going to take place. But he's probably a little relieved, too. He's like, there, I've said it. I've got it off my chest. Notice again what happens. 
verse 4, Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? In other words, Nehemiah, what do you want? What? I could imagine. We don't see it there in the text, but Nehemiah probably took a double take, right? He said, I wasn't expecting Artaxerxes to say that. I didn't think Artaxerxes was going to move that fast. He says, what do you want, Nehemiah? What do you want? And notice what Nehemiah does. I love this, the end of verse 4, probably the greatest affirmation of a prayer in the Old Testament. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Spontaneous prayer, right? He didn't say, give me a moment, i got to go in my prayer closet. <laughs> he didn't say, ah, let me go in this corner and pray real quick, Art. What did he say? He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now here's what I'm trying to get at. That's an example of spontaneous prayer. Have you ever been there before, by the way? Have you ever reached a point in your life where something's going on and you're worried about what's going to take place and you don't know how to face it, you don't know how to deal with it? And what do you do? You shout to God right in the midst of your situation. Have you been there before? Man, I have. Let me tell you when. I love to tell this story, okay? I'm a little more excited about it than you are. <laughs> I remember the first time I went on a date with Hannah. Let me sprinkle my story through here, okay? First time I went on a date with Hannah, you know, you got to throw up some spontaneous prayers to make sure nothing's on your face or you, you don't got like something unbuttoned or something like, Lord, help me here, make sure everything's okay. When I date with Hannah for the first time, I asked her out. I remember my best friend, I'm, I'm finishing up school, and he calls me, and he says, hey, Nick, I met your wife. I said, whatever, man. Never met Hannah. I said, whatever, man. You're, you're crazy. You haven't met my wife. And he said, just trust me, okay? Just trust me. I, I've met your wife. So I said, okay. I went home that week. I met her, took her out on a date. Two weeks later, I called him back. I said, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. We dated about 10 months, got married after that. We just knew uh, this was the one. But I remember I went on that first date with her, right? Guys, you know what I mean. Still get nervous. You don't want to say anything crazy, anything stupid, okay? <laughs> like, guard, God, guard my mouth. <laughs> so I don't say anything stupid. So I'm praying those spontaneous prayers. And God, in the midst of all that, is moving, Right? He's moving to bring people together. He does the same thing in your life, and he did the same thing in, in, in my life, right? God is moving. I went home and had to pray a lot more because I had, God had to convince Hannah to date me. God didn't have to convince me. He had to convince Hannah, right? <laughs> but God did, and God is working in the midst of all of that. And sometimes it takes spontaneous prayers. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I know where you're getting at, Pastor. I, I know what you're trying to say to me. You're trying to say Nehemiah prayed and instantly things worked out. Wouldn't it be nice if God worked that way? But he doesn't, right? Nehemiah had to wait. Notice, let me point this out to you because sometimes we miss it when we read our English translations. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 1 quickly. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Kislev. Well, what's the month of Kislev? In the Hebrew, it's mid-November, mid-December, right? So when the book opens, Nehemiah is somewhere in November, somewhere in December. He's somewhere in that month. Notice chapter 2, though. If you miss this, it's really easy to. Notice chapter 2, when Nehemiah, verse 1, it says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan. 
Well, what's Nisan? In the Hebrew, that's mid-March, mid-April. Four months, friends. Four months have transpired between the time that Nehemiah noticed what was going on and began to pray and the time that God moved the king of the heart, the heart of the king. Four months had transpired between the two time periods there, right? Don't miss that. In all probability, Nehemiah has been praying the whole time. We don't know that for sure, but we know in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, that he actually fasted. There were long periods of fasting that took place. Four months, Nehemiah had to wait for God to move. In all probability, it didn't affect his relationship. It, it didn't affect his prayer life, his work ethic. He, again, continued to pursue God while he waited. Right? Four months he had to wait. Four months. Never affected anything. Now here's the point. Here's what I'm driving at today. Nehemiah didn't want to rush it. Right? He wanted to wait on what? The quiet hand of God. He had watched God's hand move throughout the whole Old Testament to where he is now. And so he wanted to wait on the quiet hand of God. So what does he do? He prays and he waits. Right? Now here's the first lesson I want to teach you today. Here's the first thing I want you to know. Because God's quiet hand moves in your life, you and I are enabled or can be enabled to trust God the Lord, to accomplish his plans and his purposes in your life. You think about that. Because we know God moves, knowing that God's quiet hand moves in your life, you can trust him to accomplish his plans, not yours, in his time, not yours. We can know that God moves in our life. So listen, friends, are you waiting on a job today? Pray. And ask God to give you strength while you wait. Are you single today, wanting to get married? Pray and ask God to move in your life. Ask him to help you. Are you sick today, physical illness? What do you do? You pray and you wait for God to move. You pray and ask God to move in your life. And by the way, let me remind you, even if you don't see the hand of God moving, it doesn't mean he's not moving. I love what... John Piper says, he says, God may be doing 10,000 things in your life, but you may only be aware of three of them. Isn't that good? Listen, God is always moving. Sometimes you just don't see it. Sometimes you just don't see it. God's quiet hand moves. So what do you do? You say, Pastor Nick, I, I want to see God move. I want to trust him. What do I do? Three scriptural truths for your life today to grab a hold of. Three scriptural truths. Number one, stand still before God. Number two, sit still under the hand of God. And number three, be still and know that I'm God. Isn't that good? Sit still and know that he is God. You're not. I'm not. Isn't it good to know that you're not in control of your life today? I'd be in trouble. I don't know about you, but I'd be in trouble if I was in control of my life. Sit still. Stand still and be still. God will move, but you've got to rely on him to move in your life. I've got to move quickly here. Now I'm going to say, well, Pastor Nick, are you just saying we need to pray and just fold our hands and let God just send us a text or email sometime to give us his purposes? No, that's not what Nehemiah does. Notice verse 4. Verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 2 again. I'm going to read 
verses 4, 5, and 6. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it pleases the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall the journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time. Notice there, what did Nehemiah do? He set a time. That shows us that Nehemiah was preparing. Notice that Nehemiah prayed, but then he also prepared, right? He also prepared. Listen, God's sovereignty is not a license to deny our responsibility. I want you to think about that. Just because God is in control doesn't mean that you're not responsible. Nehemiah knows this. Notice verse number seven. He says, Moreover, I said unto the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. In other words, Nehemiah also knew that these enemies of Israel, they're not going to let him through. So what does he do? He says, King, will you give me letters of transit? Will you give me a letter to, to be able to get through these enemies? He's planning, right? He knew that. He knew that they weren't going to get him. So what does he do? He plans ahead. He prays and he plans ahead. He prays and he gets busy. He prays and he's prepared. It's the same thing in your life today. Notice verse number eight, though. And then he says, In a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gate of the palace, which appertained or is near to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He's not a construction worker. How does he know what he needs? How does he know that he needs the wood for the gates? How does he know he needs the wood for the walls? He prepared. He did his homework. See, while he was waiting on God to move the heart of the king, he was preparing for the moment that God moved. He was preparing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And friends, it's the same thing with you. We both as a church today have to pray and have to prepare. We have to pray, and we have to prepare. And here's the problem with the church. I've seen a lot of it in my ministry today. What churches do is they do either or, right? They either pray, no preparation, or they either prepare, they either work and get busy and no prayer. Both are dangerous. Now, I'm not against either. I'm for both, right? And if we ever want to see God move, we have to pray, and we have to prepare. Now, let me do this for you. I want to do this, and... You may say, this is crazy that a candidate is doing this, but I want to talk you out of voting for me today. Pastor Paul's a little nervous. I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Let me talk you out of voting for me today. Here's why. If you don't want to pray, don't vote for me. If you don't want to spend time on your knees before the Lord, asking God to move in this place, to move in this community, don't vote for me. You know why? Because prayer is important. It's important to me. It's important to your pastor. He's prayed with me every single time we've met together. Not only every time we've met, but he's also prayed many other times for you. We sat here in this service and prayed. You know why? Prayer's important to him. Prayer's important to me. Don't vote for me if you don't want to pray. Number two, don't vote for me if you don't want to prepare. And you say, that is crazy that a candidate is saying that. <laughs> Most of the time they try to make themselves look as good as possible. If I wanted to do that, I'd bring my daughter up here and win you over, okay? 
Don't vote for me if you don't want to prepare, all right? If you don't want to get busy for the Lord, if you don't want to work hard for God, it's not going to work out well. You know why? I want to work. I want to get busy. I want to see God move. Your pastor works hard. You can't be in ministry for over 40 years, move a campus, see thousands of souls come to Christ if you don't get busy, right? Your pastors are the same way, and I am too. I want to get busy for God. I want to pray, and I want to preach. And here's why. It's not because I'm special. It's not because I have any gifts. It's not because uh, I have everything hanging on my shoulders and God needs me. No way. God builds his church with me or without me, right? It's not because of that. It's because souls hang in the balance. Now listen, I'm preaching here. I want you to know with all my heart, God is going to save souls and I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. You think about that. There are souls across the street from Gospel Baptist Church dying and going to hell. That bothers me. Man, that bothers me. There are souls in your neighborhood dying and going to hell. And I want to be a part of what God is doing in that soul. I want to see that change. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray, and I'm going to prepare. I'm going to step out in faith, but I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I'm going to get busy. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. I want to point this out to you. If you'll put that quote up there for me. Charles Spurgeon said this, if souls are going to go to hell, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. Listen, I want to see people come to know Christ. God's not going to do it without prayer. He's not going to do it without preparation. And then I want you to see this too. I want you to say, see this. The second point is this, and I'm going to move quickly here, okay? I only got one minute left. Second point is this. Knowing that God and his quiet hand works in our life draws us or challenges us to live with no substitute for diligent planning and determined efforts. That's the point I want to make here. We've got to be diligent. Regardless, the fact that God's quiet hand moves still means we've got to be diligent, Right? We still got to see God move in our life. We still got to be diligent. Got to work hard. And then all the glory goes to God. All the glory goes to God. Notice this, and I'm done. Verse 8. That's the last part there. Nehemiah gets to the end of this. And Nehemiah could have taken the credit. You think about it. He funded the whole project, right? Nehemiah worked, he, he gave his time. But notice who he gives the glory to. He says, and the king granted me according, what? To the good hand of my God upon me. Who got the glory? God did. And friends, it's the same thing in your life today. Everything you have, everything you are, is not because of anything good in you. It's all because of God and his work in your life. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, that's my life verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, what does Paul say? I worked harder than all of them, but it was not I. It was the grace of God in me. Friends, you and I are here today. We're sitting in this room because of God's grace. When we look back and we see what God's done in our life and through us, we say, God, it is for your glory. And it's all because of you. It's all because of you. And we can, at the end of our life, say, as Fanny Crosby did in 1872 in her famous hymn, to God be the glory, great things 
he hath done. Listen, I want to see God move in this place. I know you do too. Nehemiah 2 is a great picture of God's quiet hand. Not only in Nehemiah's life, but also in ours. So I'm praying that God moves. I'm praying God moves in your heart and moves in this community. I'm thankful, thankful for the opportunity to be here and for Pastor Paul and his influence and Miss Karen. They've been so kind to us. So thankful for God's work. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we come to you today. We know that in all things that take place, you are the one behind it all. And sometimes we can glorify the puppet and miss the puppeteer. Sometimes we can glorify the human and miss the God behind the human. And so, God, we pray that as we come to this time that we, Lord, we look and acknowledge you as the one who is quietly working No flash, no signs, no wonders, but quietly working in our midst to bring about your purposes and your plans. And so, God, we pray, as we saw Nehemiah, we learn to trust you. But not get lazy. We get busy. We get busy for you, and in the end, we glorify. Because, God, we know that above all else, it's not because of anything we did, but it's by your grace. And so, God, we trust you for that. We pray as your spirit moves in this room that hearts will be challenged, convicted, and you will get the glory. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nick. Stand with me if you would.